The Eagle and Child, Episode 12. Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 5. The Practical Conclusion. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we come to the final chapter of Book 2 of Mere Christianity. And once again, I'm joined by a fellow sharer in the divine life, Matt. Oh, I do hope very much so you are correct there. Me too. Today's podcast, we're going to dive into what Christ's death means for us. So if you think back to last week, we looked at what it did to us, and and ultimately some theories of that through the atonement. Theories of how it worked. Exactly. Now we look at what it means for us. So we unpack a concept St. Paul talks about frequently in the New Testament, and I was very drawn to it in high school when I was reading scripture quite frequently. This concept of dying to your old self and putting on a new self in Christ. But what does that mean? Well, I don't think we can go to such deep theology without the beer in our hands, so cheers. Cheers. We're drinking the same thing as last week. We're finishing up the Ballast Point Bonito. We were going to be drinking Guinness, but I went over to Matt's last night and he drank it all. (laughs) I had some help from other people. And you did teach me a new card game. Euchre. For all listeners, best card game ever. It was one of the strangest things. Have you ever hung out with somebody where they've got a hobby that they really, really love? And you can tell the entire time you're being introduced to it, they're looking at you, waiting for your squeals of excitement and joy. That's what it was like in that group. It was kind of intimidating. Well, this was funny. This connects to C.S. Lewis and the Four Loves. Remember he talked about how friendship is born out of the concept, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. Euchre is that for Midwest people, particularly Michigan people. Uh, I mean, last half night, the last people, night makes sense now. Half the people there I had never met before. <laughs> but by the end of the night, we were all best friends enjoying <laughs> Euchre for hours on end. The rules are super weird, but it was still fun. I did enjoy it. I don't think it's going to be quite the life-changing experience that everyone was hoping it was going to be, but it's a fun game. That's okay. You just never can be invited again. <laughs> hey, I let you win. Be grateful. <laughs> Moving on. The final chapter of this book begins with quite an attention-grabbing assertion. Lewis states, People often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man, will happen. But in the Christian view, it has already happened. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared. And the new kind of life which began in him is to be put in us. Again, we're going back to this dying to your old self, being reborn in Christ. So Jack is focusing in on this idea of this new life. And couching it in terms of evolution, it really unsettled me, first of all. It's like, what? Wait, what? Where are you going with this? But it's a really good way of thinking about it. When we talk about mankind progressing and developing and these jumps in evolution happening. You know what's interesting, actually? I didn't think about this until you just mentioned it. I was listening to this podcast called Intelligence Squared. Once a week, our debate at the Oxford Union, they bring in these brilliant speakers. One was with the author of the book Homo Deus. 
And he asserts that the next step in evolution is we become the gods that we've created. But what's fascinating is, and what I, what I think is interesting about that, is the Christian faith already kind of posits that. Mm-hmm. When it says you know, Jesus became man, so man could become God. Exactly. That's, that's how St. Athanasius said it. It's in a very provocative sense. It's not saying that we become the source of life for all things and we are yes. omnipotent and omniscient. But he says the very bold statement that God became man so that man could become God. This feeds back into the idea that I mentioned in the last episode that you see expressed very clearly in Eastern Christianity, in Eastern Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy. It's called deification or theosis. The idea is that we participate with the divine life and we're raised up into that divine life. And if you're thinking, wait, this sounds a little heretical, go and look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter says that we have become partakers in the divine nature. And your comment about that podcast, the title of that book, was it Homo Deus? I'm pretty sure. That's exactly actually what Jack is talking about. From Homo sapien to Homo Deus, an elevation of our nature. That's what I was thinking the whole time I'm listening to his talk. I'm like, this is nothing new. (laughs) Bringing this back to Lewis, a natural question is, how do we acquire this new life? How is this to be done Lewis compares the divine life with the natural life. He points out, we derived the natural life from others without our consent and by a very curious process involving pleasure, pain, and danger. And by that, he means dating. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, before we go any further, Matt, I have a question. Uh Uh-oh. Right after he talks about pleasure, pain, and danger. Where do babies come from? Oh, well, of course. I, I wish little... you could see his face here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he's birds from the skies that carry him down. Well, you see, this is the point that he makes. He says, when you try and explain to kids where babies come from, and this is something that kids are always very curious about, but sometimes when you explain to them where babies come from, they don't believe you. And I actually remember the first time I had the talk. Afterwards, I just burst out laughing. This was hilarious. Personally, I'm still a firm believer in the stork. That just makes sense to me. And actually, if you're driving, I think it's on the 805, past one of the hospitals in San Diego, they actually have a stork on the roof of the parking lot of the maternity hospital. And I remember feeling so validated the first time I drove past there. It's like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that just made way more sense. (laughs) It's actually funny. In England, people talk about the stork bringing babies, or finding babies underneath gooseberry bushes. What? I don't know why gooseberry bushes, but that was a thing. Interesting. Yeah. Which, again, Lewis's point, in the same way the natural life is passed on in this odd way that we probably wouldn't have thought up ourselves, the divine life is passed on that way. This new life we've been talking about. Well, I don't think so much it's passed on in the same way. It's more of it's unexpected again. I like that. It's unexpected. Lewis says, We must be prepared for the passing on of the divine life being odd too. God did not consult us when he invented sex. Although I assume I'm going to be very happy he did. Within the boundaries of marriage, of course. Of course. And he has not consulted us either when he invented this. And Jack goes on to discuss the three main ways that he sees this supernatural life being passed on to us. And he identifies them as baptism, 
belief, and Holy Communion. That would have been great if he did three Bs. Baptism, belief, bread. Not bad. Not bad. And he's very balanced when he's talking about these three ways. First of all, he doesn't limit the divine life to just these three ways. He says, I'm not saying that there may not be special cases. Basically, God's grace can still be communicated through other means. It's not limited to just these three. But this is what he says. However, if you're trying in a few minutes to tell a man how to get to Edinburgh, you'll tell him the trains. He can, of course, get there by boat or plane, but you'd hardly bring that in. And that's how he regards baptism, belief, and Holy Communion. And obviously different Christian groups are going to regard these a little differently. He even says that his Methodist friend wanted him to talk more about belief and less about the other two. But he says, I'm not going to do that. Because apart from anything else, any Christian who's teaching you the faith will talk about all three. Lewis has very much a both-and kind of attitude rather than either-or. Although it is interesting because there are some Protestant groups that don't say do baptism. I'm thinking of the Salvation Army. They typically don't baptize. And one other point that he makes in this area, he says, don't think that I'm setting up these three, belief, baptism, and Holy Communion. Don't think I'm setting these up as things to do instead of your own attempts to copy Christ. Sometimes it's very easy for us to think that that is the totality of the Christian experience, to simply receive the sacraments, rather than the lived experience of cooperating with all of that grace that you've received to help transform yourself into Christ. Connecting this back a little bit to last episode, when I talked about how my first belief was so much on mimicking Christ without actually the graces or the sacrament side of things, and then after understanding the incarnation better and what that does and the grace that comes from that, I recognize that the two go hand in hand. You can't separate them. It's not that you do belief, baptism, Holy Communion, and everything's good. You still need to work with from an obedient perspective to mimicking Christ, mm -hmm. to, to trying to model your life and walk in the footsteps of him. But now you have, I don't know if the right word is a tool, an assistance. You have the gas. You have the it. gas to do it. And that's the grace. Mm -hmm. And right. you can't do it around the other way. It can't just be all about my personal effort to yes. be extra holy. Yes. It requires on the grace of God, which we see primarily expressed through baptism, Holy Communion, and belief. Yep. Now, why do we believe all this? Meaning, why do we believe it's transmitted through belief, baptism, and Holy Communion? Simply put, on the authority of Jesus. And that can be scary to people. Oh, authority. I don't want authority people to tell me what to do. Jack decides to spend a little bit of time looking at this idea of authority. Lewis states, don't be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. And he gives the example of New York. He says, I believe New York exists. I've never been there. I can't reason myself to it by abstract reasoning to prove that there is such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. I mean, think of all the things in science that we believe based on authority. I haven't dug into all these things, but the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of the blood, I believe all of that based on authority. Mm -hmm. And actually, pretty much every single historical statement is based on an authority. I know I'm a little older than you, but even I wasn't around at the Norman Conquest. I didn't see the defeat of the Armada. But I believe these things happened because people who did see them 
or new people who saw them, left writings that tell me about it. And what I love about this conversation on authority is it makes me think of a very important point in my journey, and just from other Catholic listeners, the authority of the church. Mm -hmm. We place great trust in the authority of the church in understanding how we interpret scripture and teachings, the positive faith. And even scripture itself. Exactly. There were councils of the church determining what is scripture, what is not. Yes. In one of the things that I've spent a lot of time recently doing is digging into why do we trust this authority? Digging into, we all know Jesus had this authority to him. People that met Jesus talks about he spoke with an authority. He was a son of God. Then we see that he passed this authority to his disciples, the apostles. After the resurrection, in John's account, he breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. The very thing that had got him into so much trouble in his own earthly ministry, telling people that their sins were forgiven, yes. in, the, in the words of Lewis, as though he were the one chiefly offended, he is now passing on to his apostles. And it's for that and many other reasons that in Scripture, in the New Testament, it declares that it is the church that is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Lewis concludes that we reject authority at our own peril. He says, a man who jibbed at authority in other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. Wow. And I, I hear that a lot when people say, oh, you're just believing that on the authority of somebody. That's what everybody does about everything. The issue is, is that source trustworthy? Is that source reliable? Because if it is, you'd be crazy not to accept it. Kind of like in the last chapter when we were talking about somebody on the shore who's going to pull me ashore if I'm drowning. I would be foolish to reject that help if the person is well-grounded. Jack then continues talking about this new life. And he particularly focuses on this idea that this new life can be lost and therefore must be protected. Which is an interesting point that today would cause a lot of contention. Essentially, he's asking, can we lose salvation? Mm -hmm. And there would be some Christian groups that would say, it's not possible. I don't think the scriptures bear that out, and apparently neither does Lewis. But there is also a danger with what he's saying here, that people might think that he's suggesting some sort of Pelagianism again, that we can do it by ourselves. He rules that out. He says, your natural life is derived from your parents, but that doesn't mean that it'll stay there if you do nothing about it. You have to feed it and look after it. But always remember that you're not making it. You're only keeping up a life that you got from someone else. So he's talking about the natural life we receive from our parents. It's our duty to defend it and protect it, but we got it from someone else. We could have never have conjured it up ourselves. That is one of the best examples I've ever heard to describe mm -hmm. that. Wow. Yeah. And he says that even the best Christian that ever lived knows that he's not acting on his own steam. He's only nourishing and protecting a life that he could never have acquired by his own efforts. And when I read this this morning, it actually put me in mind of the idea of mortal and venial sin. We're going to come back to this in a moment. What we believe mortal sin is, is it's a destruction of the divine life within us, a destruction of charity. And that's borne out in scripture in 1 John. The, actually, the King James Version actually uses the term mortal sin. Other ones talk about deadly sin. Yeah, or the, or the sin that leads to death. Yes. But he's made the point very clear. This new life is freely given, but it must be guarded. 
And that actually nicely flows into the next point that Lewis makes. When he's talking about a natural life, a living body, he says that to a degree, if that body gets hurt, it can repair itself. And in my Catholic jargon, I would be regarding this as venial sin. It's not destroying the life within me, but it's hurting it. A body can repair itself up to a point. You know, if I get a cut, it will, you know, seal over in a little scab and the skin will be repaired. However, if my head gets cut off, that's, that, that's not quite recoverable. It's going to take, well, at least it's going to take more of an intervention. A, a little longer to repair, sure. Here's what he says. A live body is not one that never gets hurt, but one that can to some extent repair itself. In the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong. Matt, do you ever make mistakes? Mm, once in a while. Okay, so when that happens, a Christian is a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again. Because the Christ life is inside him, repairing him all the time enabling him to repeat, at least to some degree, the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. And this feeds back into what we were looking at in the last chapter, where we talked about when God helps us, it's him putting a little bit of his love into us, a little bit of his thinking into us, or in this case, his repentance that's only made possible through the incarnation. Lewis then reinforces the idea of grace by pointing out that anything good which comes from us comes from this new life. He says, the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. I love that statement. Mm -hmm. He does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it's bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. And this emphasizes the main point that all Christians can agree on, that we are only saved by grace. It's only a gift right from the get-go. And even anything that we do after that, it is still grace working through us. We still can't take credit for any good deed that we do. And next time anyone ever brings up this justification by faith or works, bring it all back to the beginning. We're saved by grace. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good foundation that we can start on when we're having those tricky conversations as to how each tradition has understood the role of faith and works and grace. Yes. If we can all agree that we're saved by grace and not because we're that great and God owes it to us, I think that's a really good place to begin. Taking this to another level, this new life is expressed through the whole body of Christ. So when a Christian says that Christ is in them, they're not referring to something mental or moral. We actually mean that Christ is literally operating in us. And Lewis says the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts. And actually, on my other podcast, Restless Heart, I actually recently recorded a more personal episode where I talked about how the body of Christ loved me in the death of my father and actually how I encountered Christ through that that even in that very dark time, I actually felt very loved by Christ because he was loving me through the hands and the feet of my friends. Wow. That's beautiful. And this point is important because understanding how God uses physical nature, this body, this tangible hands and feet of us, this living organism, that helps explain why this new life is not purely spread through mental acts, such as belief. 
Because we might ask ourselves, essentially, why use Holy Communion? Mm-hmm. Why use this baptism? And really the answer is, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Yeah. We are physical beings. It therefore makes sense that God would communicate to us in a mode that we can readily receive. Yes. That it's not purely just by mental acts, but that his grace is expressed through sense. And Jack ends the chapter by dealing with a couple of objections that people might have. The first main objection is that doesn't this all seem a little unfair that this divine life is only given to those who have actually heard of Christ? And with classic Lewis humility, he makes the point that we're actually somewhat ignorant in this area. He says, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. And that's a critical distinction. When talking about salvation and eternal life, many people will quote the verses that talk about the only way to salvation is through Jesus. And that's completely true. There's no arguing that. But the statement's not saying only those who know him. Mm -hmm. It's just saying that the only way to salvation is through Jesus. That if somebody gets to heaven, it is only by virtue of the graces which come through Jesus and his sacrifice. Exactly. And that brings us to the Catholic view. So in some ways, the Catholic view on salvation is rather liberal. In fact, when I've shared it with Catholics, they don't even realize this is what we believe, and they have a hard time believing it. But at the same time, I think it's often misrepresented and a caricature is presented. Yes. So first of all, those who are outside of visible communion with the Catholic Church, people who maybe have never heard the gospel, uh, belong to some other denomination, maybe haven't received their sacraments. Even another faith. Yeah, even another faith. The Catholic Church doesn't say, definitely going to hell. In fact, the Catholic Church doesn't consign anybody to hell. But does that mean that everybody goes to heaven? No. And the Church also makes that very clear. You can have been sacramentalized. You might have got all of your sacraments. But that is not like just punching a ticket that automatically gets you to heaven. The Catholic view is that we hold out the hope of salvation. Because we know that grace is found in the sacraments. But we know that God is not bound by that. He can work in extraordinary ways. So in that way, if we get to heaven, hopefully, (laughs) we might see some people there that would rather surprise us. And we also might be rather surprised by some absences. The central thing to remember is that God is the judge. He has given us the normative ways, the normative means of salvation through establishing a church and establishing sacraments. And putting his image on our hearts. Mm -hmm. Actually, Lewis went through all of the things that God had done in response to our rebellion. And this is the way of salvation that we know, but we don't restrict God to that because he can do whatever he wants, which is why we can hold out hope for someone who dies without ever having heard of Christ. I mean, for a start, you actually have all of the people in the Old Testament who hadn't the full revelation, but we still think that those who make it to heaven are doing it on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ. Bringing this back to Lewis again, his original point that some have this objection that it's unfair. Well, even if you, let's just give them that assumption. That's not a reason to reject this new life. No. 
It'd be fact, crazy. It, it's like the person drowning, refusing to take the arm of someone that's on the shore. Exactly. I mean, if you believe, well, hey, that just seems unfair. Well, the best thing you can do for others is to become a Christian and help transmit that divine life. Going back into that analogy, to accept that hand that's offered that's going to pull you to shore so that you can then help pull other people ashore. Exactly. We might not know perfectly what God's plan is, but Lewis says, if you're worried about the people outside, the most unreasonable thing you can do is remain outside yourself. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ who alone can help them. Because it is Christ who does the saving, but he uses material things and sometimes even fallen humans like the two of us, hopefully. Very fallen humans. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, there's then a second objection. Some people say, why does God invade in this way? Why did he come in as a secret agent? Why did he come in as a zygote, a fetus, a little baby? Why didn't he invade in force? Well, in first, Lewis begins by saying, well, in fact, we do believe he's going to. Mm -hmm. Second coming. Exactly. But beyond that, why is it delayed? Well, Lewis makes the suggestion, we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. No. I think that's a wonderful example and would have really have resonated with his audience at the time that this was written. Yes. And if you want to put it in business terms, this is a startup that is going to go places. And we're being offered a spot in at the ground floor. I like that. And to be part of something amazing. What could be a greater calling in life? Amen. Amen. Oh, I hear the bell. As usual, the outline for this chapter will be in the show notes. Please like, share, subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean. If you want to contact us, there's always the website, restlesspilgrim.net, and Twitter at Pints with Jack. And we just finished up book two, so really would look forward to seeing what your thoughts are so far. What are you struggling with? What do you like? And we'll see you in book three, when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>